It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Up next, I want to get straight to our next guest, Dana Peterson, Chief Economist at the Conference Board, who's going to join us on Zoom. And Dana, I have to get your thoughts because we are just coming off of the data that we get got last week when it came to consumer confidence and rising to the highest level since early 2022. How do you square that away when a lot of the data say GDP was revised higher for the second quarter coming in stronger than expected? But then it seems like a lot of people, even if you exclude some of the sentiment gauges, still feel a bit gloomy, especially when it comes to what is ahead for the economy. Sure. Looking at the consumer confidence measure that the conference board uh, produces, uh, yes, it did rise to the highest level we've seen in some time. But if you look at the series on a graph, it's been moving um, pretty much in the same range. And it's a range that's below the peak that we saw last year and also well below the the pre-pandemic 2019 levels. Um, When you look at the details, consumers are saying, well, things are okay right now. I'm working. Um, I have uh, income. Business conditions seem to be okay. Um, Looking to the future, they still expect that maybe there's something negative around the quarter. Maybe there's a recession or a soft spot. So talk to us then about this U.S. manufacturing activity. We just got this uh, ISM data this morning. That's the Institute for Supply Management's manufacturing gauge. Uh, Eighth month of contraction here, Dana. How happy is Jay Powell after seeing those numbers? Or do you not necessarily look at that as a huge indicator of the macro picture here? Well, factory activity is one important measure and certainly something that we look at and include in our leading index. Um, And the reason why factory activity is so weak is because consumers are no longer buying goods in mass. That was certainly uh, the conditions during the pandemic where they couldn't go out and enjoy services. Now they can enjoy services. So that's why we're seeing uh, services, purchasing managers, indicators rising and a lot of spending on services, which we saw in last week's PCE report. I know you also have the conference board's leading index, which has been negative for 14 consecutive months. And it's something rare to see over the past half century. Typically, when you've seen instances like that, it's only happened in 1974, 1980, and 2008, where you've seen that sort of extreme time threshold there. But then the U.S. economy was actually already in a recession. What do you think this is telling us about the economy? Sure. What the leading index tells us is that uh, there's probably a recession starting right about now, or which is the third quarter of the year. And certainly because it's been negative for so long, 
it does suggest that we will see a soft spot. We are actually forecasting a recession, but a short and shallow one. So the thing is that the when you look at current conditions, they're still signaling that there's no recession. And that's why, and that's because four out of the, well, two out of the four indicators are linked to the labor market and incomes. And we know the labor market's still doing well and incomes are rising on a real basis. So that's helping to support consumers. But businesses certainly are feeling the pinch, certainly manufacturers, because there's less demand. And also many businesses are also looking ahead and concerned that there's something uh, negative around the corner and starting, and they are definitely pulling back at least on investments, if not on labor. Dana, I'm really curious about how you rate the importance of cumulative savings when it comes to uh, the inflationary picture here. Our Bloomberg economists crunched the numbers on this. They show that the lowest 40% of households in the U.S. have negative real excess cash balances. Uh, So just some evidence there that the concerns about tons of stimulus uh, really beefing up these consumer balance sheets may not necessarily have the sticking power that we have, have been talking about it having. Uh, What is your take on the importance of cumulative savings and where those stand right now? Well, during the pandemic, yes, you had those big injections of stimulus. For the lowest-income families, they probably spent it all, and that's why they have negative savings right now, and they're using credit cards to get by. Um, So that's what you're seeing there, and that kind of makes sense. The thing is that it's really tough for the Fed to get at uh, spending on services uh, and uh, people not spending out of this excess savings because it's not something that you finance, right? So even if you put something on a credit card, your credit card rate doesn't shift around with the Fed funds rate. So we think in aggregate, the excess savings that people have is pretty much going to run out by the fall. And again, that's aggregate. So that's including people who are across the income distribution. So I think, you know, what's really still supporting savings is people who are probably in the middle of the income distribution who did also receive stimulus checks, but are also working and seeing their incomes rise. So really the Fed needs to see weakening in the labor market, uh, companies taking down those job ads so that consumers feel, okay, well, I don't have as many options, so maybe I'll just sit tight or maybe I'll back on my spending and that'll help bring down inflation. How does oil play into this? Because right now, if we're looking at U.S. crude prices, trading around $70 a barrel. And overnight, we did get that news, obviously, with the Saudis as well as Russia extending those oil supply cuts. How much of a, a fuel do we would need to see, no pun intended, when it comes to oil prices moving higher to then maybe exacerbate what we've seen when it comes to the inflation dynamics like we saw, say, last summer, which obviously oil prices were trading much higher when it comes to that and what it could mean for Americans in their pocketbooks? Sure, right now and certainly in the in Friday's uh, PC inflation report, we saw that actually gasoline prices are, are falling year on year. And uh, when you go to the pump, they're pretty low right now, prices for gasoline. And in fact, many people are expecting lots of folks are going to get out in their cars this holiday week. Um, so any increase or rather any decreases in supply certainly will put upper pressure on prices. But that usually takes a few months. And certainly that would not be a positive in terms of the Fed help uh, working to bring down inflation, because certainly the Fed cannot control OPEC. So it's it's certainly a negative if we do see material increases in prices. But for the most part right now, gasoline prices definitely are cooling and providing some relief to consumers.
All right, Dana, in our final couple minutes with you, I want to do what every economist, I'm sure, just loves doing. Look into your crystal ball for me here uh, for the rest of this week. What do you think is going to be the most important data point that we're going to get in terms of sussing out what the Fed's next moves are going to be? Is it going to be some of this labor market data, something else? Absolutely, it's going to be the labor market data. We'll get ADP, uh, and we'll also have the BLS payrolls report. Um, we've seen that the labor market continues to be robust. I think that there are three uh, uh, forces going on here with, with respect to the labor market. You do have some companies that are letting folks go, but most companies are either hiring or just sitting tight and hoarding labor. And it's the case that those companies that are hiring plus the hoarders are outweighing the companies that are letting people go. So we're probably going to continue to see Um, positive readings on payrolls, and a low unemployment rate. But the key thing will be next week when we get the JOLTS data to see if if vacancies are dialing down, which indicates that businesses are definitely feeling uh, concerned about the future and that workers should actually uh, watch out and reduce their spending. Dana, we only have about 30 seconds left. When it comes to the labor market, what jobs do you think are most vulnerable right now? Well, certainly those jobs associated with the pandemic, darling. So that's finance, uh, technology, real estate, construction on residential, and also transportation and warehousing, simply because there's just less demand for goods. Dana, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to get your perspective on the economy and obviously what the conference board is gauging when it comes to your economic indicators. That's Dana Peterson, chief economist at the conference board. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Madison Mills here with Jess Metton on this Monday, the official start of the second half of the year. Uh, Not a ton today, unless you're an EV maker, of course, driving up markets. But one thing continuing to be a concern is commercial real estate. We've got a great voice on the space here. We've got Todd Henderson. He's co-head of global real estate for DWS, joining to discuss why he thinks there's less pressure on commercial real estate than the consensus view. Todd, thank you so much for being on with us on this basically holiday Monday. Really appreciate you coming on. Um, You got a lot of optimism here, not a ton of doom and gloom views from you. What are you seeing in the commercial real estate space that we're missing? Yeah, sure. I think it's more of a balanced take. Thanks uh, for having me. 
Um, I, there has been a bit of a doom loop uh, that has been, I think, pervasive here over the last couple of months. And I think it followed somewhat the banking tremor that we have. And I, what's happened, I think, is the def definition of commercial real estate has been narrowed um, to office. Or said differently, the office woes are, are painting uh, the rest of the commercial real estate market with a very broad brush. There is no doubt that there are challenges within the office space. But the rest of the commercial real estate market, which includes industrial buildings, which includes retail, which includes residential, the fundamentals are very strong. In fact, if you look at overall vacancy rates inclusive of office, we're at the lowest levels that we've ever seen. In addition to that, um, we're seeing deteriorating construction levels, uh, which the Ford supply um, is always something we watch to determine um, how we expect markets to perform uh, in the face of normalized demand. So with strong fundamentals and lowering going for demand, or sorry, um, uh, supply, uh, we, we think that there is a reasonable picture for real estate to perform much better than um, much of the doom loop that we have been experiencing in the press recently. When it comes specifically for commercial real estate, where are the vacancy rates the highest within when you're looking at regions within the United States? Well, first of all, they're they're higher in the office sector uh, and the office sector uh, today, they're as high as they've ever been, um, dating back to uh, the RTC crisis that we saw in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, when you look across uh, the different geographic areas, uh, the higher vacancies are in some of the markets that we're, ex we're experiencing migration out, uh, outflows uh, prior to the pandemic. But these are markets like San Francisco, these are markets like Chicago, um, and even some of the Manhattan markets are experiencing very high vacancies. So then talk to me about what needs to happen to change that and specifically how much of that calculation needs to come from employers getting their workers back to the office, at least in, in talking with friends this weekend, Jess, it feels so right. all over the place. It right? is like you and I are here every day. Most of our friends are not in that that's bucket. It. That's accurate. Right. But some of them are <laughs> and some of them are saying, oh, my bosses are starting to track my time in the office. It's really annoying. So maybe that's a good indicator for you, Todd. Tell me. Tell me what you're thinking. Yeah, um, there there have been a pretty material change, I think, in terms of uh, the leaders of organizations' expectations with respect to being back in the office. Uh, most of the news that you read or that's been reported over the last couple of months is uh, more days back in the office. Um, J.P. Morgan, five days for their senior most people. Uh, Zuckerberg. Uh, published a report recently that their engineers have performed more efficiently and better when in the office. So I think we'll continue to see more in the office. But I don't think that that is going to be the, the trigger that uh, causes the office market to perform better. The office market historically has been the most highest, uh, highly correlated of any of the other sectors to the business cycle. And the business cycle um, is slowing, 
Uh, and we started into this business cycle with um, reasonably high vacancies already in the office sector. So what we need is a robust economy. What we need is office using job growth. What we need is um, probably less supply, in particular the B and C office market, which is very much commodity space. Uh, think about it, if you're commuting an hour and 15 minutes each way to the office, uh, are you going to be excited about coming to an office that doesn't have the amenity base that <laughs> you know, a high quality office has. No, you're not. It's like in the um, Bloomberg office. We have so many snacks here, right, Maddie? Yeah, I love that you amazing. call it an amenity <laughs> base. That's what I'm going to start calling my, my pantry at so home. That brings me here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Bloomberg, the Bloomberg facility is a perfect example. Like, um, you know, it's a, it's a very nice building with, um, you know, snacks and drinks and, and meeting areas. And it, it, it's a, you know, it almost feels like, you know, a, a, a public space, um, uh, but in, you know, in, in the private environment. So that's the kind of uh, experience that office workers want today. And if you're not delivering it, you're not going to see uh, very robust uh, demand for your buildings. To Maddie's point, what is it going to take for us to get there? What's the catalyst in order to get people back into the office with you look back what happened during the pandemic and now there's obviously this rise of hybrid in the workplace, which obviously people are really enjoying. Yeah, it, you know, it's it's interesting though, that, you know, the, the, uh, the people that are just starting out in the workforce, uh, most of those uh, people in our firm and as I speak to, um, uh, other industry, other firms, and uh, leaders in other industries, uh, their their junior people want to be in the office. They recognize that they learn more. Um, there's better training. There's osmosis learning that goes on, and the senior folks want everyone in the office for culture continuity. So I think that's going to bounce back. Um, it's been a little bit stagnant recently. If you look at the uh, the occupancy figures, the the Castle Card uh, key swipes. We've been in and around, you know, 50% of the pre-COVID occupancy levels in terms of swipes. But I suspect we're going to see that through the remainder of the year increase. But again, I don't think that that is um, the nirvana. It, it obviously will help, but what is really going to matter is uh, making sure that we have a robust economy have office using job growth growing, and that the buildings that are not providing the work environment that tenants want to see, you know, those buildings are going to have to change, or those buildings are going to have to be repurposed to something else. All right, really quickly, Todd, in our final minute with you here, uh, talk to me about what this looks like in terms of the impact on cities. Uh, I'm always hoping that these buildings in Midtown that are previous offices are going to get turned into apartments so that I can continue to afford to live in New York City. Uh, how likely is my dream to come true here? I think some of the buildings, um, although unfortunately maybe for you, a smaller percentage of these buildings um, are convertible. Uh, it is, it's a challenge. Um, you have, you know, you have to have significant plumbing, um, you have to have the floor plates uh, lay out appropriately uh, in order to design effective and efficient units. 
So I think that the conversion to residential is an option, but again, it's not the option for every building. It's the option for a much smaller percentage of buildings than those who own them and maybe those who are looking to buy cheaper apartments uh, in the city. I think in terms of you know longer term, where are we seeing migration? Uh, mm -hmm. we, we continue to see migration to the southeast, the south, and the southwest. Yeah. I think it's cheaper cost of living, lower taxes, more business-friendly environments, and those are investable themes yeah. that I believe are here to stay. All right, Todd, thank you so much for joining us. That was Todd Henderson, co-head of Global Real Estate for DWS on commercial real estate there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Madison Mills here in the Interactive Brokers Studio. And you know what, Maddie, especially with what we've been covering the last year and when it comes to investment managers, it has been so tricky when you think of the amount of losses in the bear market last year, and then you're coming off of the NASDAQ 100's best first half to a year ever. And who better to talk to us about positioning than J.D. Gardner, CIO and founder of Aptis Capital Advisors. J.D., give us your take here as far as how are you advising clients to position off the back of what we just saw the last six months? Hey, guys, thank, thanks so much for having us. Um, really, we spend a lot of time talking about just where returns come from. So in a nutshell, yield plus growth or multiples expanding. And our advice, and it has been this for some time now, is depending on valuations to expand, to continue to expand is probably not the best way to position portfolios at the moment. So we really think there's an emphasis that should be had on yield plus growth. And that framework should drive the portfolio construction process in today's market. So then in terms of valuations, how do you suss out whether you need to reallocate or reposition based on how expensive uh, certain equities might become? I think it's just equities in, in general. When you look at how friendly valuation expansion has been since really the financial crisis, and you, you can point to the Fed and QE and things like that, like, like a lot of people will. But I, I think the last 15 years or so has really kind of fooled investors into thinking that equity valuations just go up. And if you look at where we are today versus where we are historically, given the backdrop that what's happened in the interest rate environment the last 15, 16 months, um, what's happening, you know, at the underlying the fundamental components of these companies, uh, we just think multiples expanding is is not in the cards. And we do think valuations look rich right now. When you're talking about rich valuations, I'm sure Maddie and I have a few ideas of what corners of the market you could be talking about when it comes to big tech and these growth names, but is that where you think the majority of that is placed or are there other particular corners of the market that you think look a little too lofty as well? I think it, there's definitely pockets that we could point to and say, does this make sense or, or not? And, and you can probably sense where our stance would be on that. But I think in general, there there are pockets where there's valuations that look somewhat attractive. But when you're just getting beta exposure to the market, we're we're in an environment where, unless you're willing to take significant, you know, active share risk versus the S and P, because the S and P now, like I know, just heard the market update talking about the Nasdaq, talking about the S and P. The S and P still look at the top five or six names. You're heavily, heavily focused in names that we are dependent on 
the, the, the growth associated with those companies being attractive. So then, and it's interesting because historically, when you see a strong market, that leads to strong markets ahead, right? So how do you think about risk when it comes to that? Are you concerned at all about being overbought on some of these expensive names? And your note, you, you mentioned that at least 80% of your fund's net assets will be invested in U.S. large caps. Are you concerned at all about going all in on a few a few names? No, no and, and here's here's... Here's kind of our what we tell investors all the time is we think volatility should be used as an asset class or viewed as an mm -hmm. asset class. And volatility is something that you can use to mitigate risk or enhance yield. So we have a whole suite of funds where, you know, let's say let's say you get beta plus additional yield. And we think that 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 helps alleviate that additional yield helps alleviate the potential risk that you're taking because uh, and I'll be the first one to tell you, you know, market could end up plus 30 for the rest of the year. It could go, you know, we could lose what the, what gains we've had so far year to date, but we could also keep rising. Um, I can't explain. Markets just seem to levitate right now. Mm -hmm. um, soft landing. Uh, and if you would I would guess if you polled your audience and said, hey, what do you think the market's going to do if the Fed funds rate goes from basically zero to five and a half or wherever it is right now in the next 14 months? I would guess most people would not say markets are going to just continue to truck higher um, in 2023. And so our use of volatility, our view on volatility, I think, is what allows us to continue to take that equity risk and not make any major bets about some bearish sentiment. Like we, we still want to own stocks because we think long term they're they're how you compound wealth. That's interesting because we did an MLive survey at the start of the year. I did a story with Liz McCormick over on the bonds team. And when we pulled on MLive, most respondents thought that the U.S. stock market, we were talking about the S&P 500, would retest those October lows. So they didn't necessarily see at the time a bull market coming. But I'm sure, J.D., especially when it comes to a lot of the sentiment indicators that we've been talking about when they're at such different extremes. I know the AAII survey recently has begun to turn higher the last three weeks or so. Obviously, not the same string of pessimism that we would have seen over the past 15 months before that. Uh, but do you think that there's a risk here for individual investors if they remain too bearish yeah i think there's definitely a risk and if you look at how like i, I point to the vix 2023 so far has been a year where there's been very little volatility and you've seen you know the vix go from what it was to where it is today which is significantly lower so i i think you never want to fight that um th that's kind of what i was saying i alluded to earlier the only way, if you want to take a bearish view, your potential, your opportunity cost could be could be pretty damaging to long-term compounded returns. And so that that's kind of where, you know, we want to mitigate risk specifically with our enhanced yield suite. We want to enhance the yield associated with owning beta. And we think that gives mm -hmm. you kind of more comfort in owning equities, even if you, you aren't convicted that valuations are cheap. Final 30 seconds here, JD. What is the single biggest thing that you are going to look to for the second half of the year to indicate where this market is going to end up? I, I think that that's a tough question on the spot. Um, <laughs> Give me single, your, your entire thesis yeah. on the market and how we can make yeah. money by following let you. Me yeah. Let me shake my magic eight ball. Hold on two seconds. Um, <laughs> I think I think the big thing is right now what we're spending a lot of time in the office talking through is kind of what the Fed's saying versus market ex market expectations. Um, 
all of that points to kind of how we started the conversation, which is I, I really do think yield is going to be an incredibly important driver of returns at the portfolio level. And that doesn't mean go own some high yield bonds or something like that. I think there's different ways, specifically in the, the ETF space where, you know, we're trying to pioneer ways where you can enhance yield in a very simple and liquid wrapper that's fully transparent um, and allows you to own beta instead of owning some factor or some right. tilt to portfolios that could create risk. Thank you so much, JD. It's been a pleasure getting your insight on this, a more optimistic view when it comes to investment managers. But JD Gardner, CIO and founder of Aptus Capital Advisors, thank you so much for joining us on Zoom. And Maddie, I mean, looking at these markets, we were talking about discretionary, still up over 1% in the S&P 500, real estate also up 1%, but then you have healthcare down about 1%. Mm -hmm. So kind of keeping those gains in check for the S&P 500. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern. On Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We're going to switch gears a little bit to the geopolitics, Jess, because that Russian war on Ukraine continues, almost hitting a year and a half now of that war continuing. Uh, just to go through some news there, too, Ukraine's deputy defense minister reporting heavy fighting as Kyiv's troops are advancing towards Bakhmut. Meanwhile, Russia saying it thwarted a Ukrainian assass assassination attempt on the Russian-backed head of Crimea. Lots of news to talk about this morning, and all of that, of course, following that Wagner Group uh, news from last week. Weekend, and we've got one of the foremost experts globally, I think, on Putin joining us to talk about this. Uh, Angela Stent, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, also author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West, and with the rest, she joins us on Zoom. Angela, great to speak with you, as always. In terms of the totality of the news that we're getting out of Russia, out of Ukraine right now, and the picture it paints for you regarding Putin's power, where do you think his power stands right now? How how dented is it following uh, some of the bad news that he's gotten over the course of the last eight days? So Putin seems to have bounced back. I mean, um, Saturday, when, it, when all these events were occurring on, on June 24th, uh, he was very angry. He seemed insecure. He kind of disappeared from view. Uh, but he's now done a lot of public events. He's, as I said, he's bounced back. He's made speeches. And we do know now that the Russian state is taking over Wagner's assets. They've raided 
the Wagner offices in St. Petersburg. They've taken down the logo, you know, from the building uh, where Wagner is. And they are slowly, um, and I think systematically, trying to figure out how how they're going to take these assets over, who is going to run them. Uh, and of course, it's not only what Wagner has in Russia and Ukraine, but in Africa, Central African Republic, Mali, in Sudan, in Libya, in all these places where Wagner was such an important uh, outpost, uh, really, uh, arm of uh, the Russian state. So for the moment, Putin looks as if he is in charge. But I think there's so many questions still surrounding what happened last week and who was behind what, that I will still have to wait and see uh, how this plays out. In the wake of these insurrection attempts just over a week ago that threatened to steal Putin's grip on power, how has that impacted Ukraine's counteroffensive with Russia? Well, it doesn't seem to have had that much of an impact. I mean, the counteroffensive continues. It's very difficult. Uh, the Russians have very strong defenses. They've been building them for months. Uh, and the Ukrainians are inching forward. They're taking small amounts of territory, as you said. Uh, they are trying to retake what's left left of Bakhmut, which is really a destroyed town. Uh, but these gains come at significant loss of human life. So uh, what the Ukrainians have said is that the real counteroffensive hasn't begun yet in as much as they have more troops and more weapons that they can put into this. And this may happen in a few weeks. But what they've said is, we're not going to tell you when it's going to happen. Uh, and you'll see, uh, you'll find out when we're actually doing it. Angela, if Putin was already able to bounce back just a little over a week after uh, the Wagner Group's moves here, what is it that could finally kind of put a dent in some of his power, both in Russia and then in this war effort in Ukraine? What do you think is something that could be a catalyst for that? Well, there could still be questions about um, his hold on the reins of power. There are obviously questions swirling around about how, how much of the regular military actually supported some of the things that Prigozhin was doing and supported his criticism of the way that the war was being waged. We know that at least one general, Surovikin, apparently supported him and he's now disappeared. So there may be other questioning going on. And I think people will be waiting to see how the campaign in Ukraine goes. Uh, can the Russian armed forces continue fighting back about with at the Ukrainians without the Wagner forces. And we don't know how many of the Wagner forces have joined the regular forces. They were supposed to have done so by July 1. Uh, we're not sure about that. So I think that's one certainly of the, of the indications. The other thing would be if you could really see complaining and unrest among the elites that support Putin. But we really haven't seen that because I think once they understood that the mutiny was over, um, they need Putin to stay in power to protect their assets and their way of life. They may have lost the ability to travel to Europe and visit their homes and banks account, bank accounts because all of the sanctions that we've levied on them. But still, they want to keep what they have in Russia and, and continue to lead the lifestyle that they're able still to do. And for that, they don't want Putin to go. Prigozhin would not have been a good alternative for them. So I think, again, if you saw more, more overt unrest among the elites surrounding him, then you'd really have to question what's going on. But we haven't seen that uh, since the mutiny was over. Do we have a sense of what the timetable could be for how long this could continue? Or is this something that's going to turn out to be an endless war? 
So Putin, I think certainly before last week, thought that Russia could outlast the West. Uh, we have elections coming up, I don't have to tell you, in the U.S., and we have some Republicans and candidates who are against supporting Ukraine. And then they're looking at Europe and then also movements and groups in Europe who say that we should be forcing the Ukrainians to the negotiating table. So I think he believed that. And I think he still believes maybe he can outlast the West. Uh, but we, we did see a show of Western unity last week. So unfortunately, this war could go on for a long time. It also depends on how much the U.S. and its allies, but primarily the U.S., is willing to furnish the Ukrainians uh, in sophisticated weaponry. And they're things like attackums, uh, which uh, missiles, which the um, Ukrainians are really asking for and which the U.S. has so far not given them, F-16 fighter aircraft that they want, because, um, you know, their air defenses are not as strong as they could be. So if they got more weaponry from the U.S., then they this might be able to be over earlier. But that's also yeah. been a very slow process. Well, Angela, how concerned are you that the upcoming elections in the U.S. are going to make that even harder uh, for U.S. officials to properly get funding for Ukrainian counter offenses uh, and weaponry as well? I think it's going to be more difficult. I think you'll see that this year, 2023, was probably the peak year of assistance for Ukraine. Uh, we'll see the debates in the fall um, as the election campaigns unfold. They, uh, people have to figure out what they're going to do with the National Defense Authorization Act, which is where they would be assigning all the money uh, uh, and other things for Ukraine. Uh, but I think it's going to be more difficult because you you get a, you have a split among the Republican candidates um, uh, about their views on Ukraine. And obviously, if Donald Trump is the candidate, uh, that's going to be a def very different situation next year than we have this year. Angela, we only have about a minute left here. What are your sort of final thoughts when it comes to this and what we should be keeping an eye on moving forward? Well, I think we have to keep an eye on the whereabouts of Mr. Prigozhin. Uh, we don't know where he is. Um, he may be in Belarus, but we don't know that. Uh, we only have audio recordings from him. We have to keep our eyes on what happened to, if we ever find out, General Surovikin, who has disappeared. Uh, we'll see how many people disappear or are no longer there. And then I think uh, we need to see how successful the Russian state is in taking over the Wagner assets and controlling this kind of monstrosity, really, that got out of control and that the Kremlin thought that it could control earlier on. All right, Angela, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. It's really uh, so important that we have you as a source to get some of these insights on what's going on on the ground with that war in Ukraine and what's going on with Putin moving forward as well. That was Angela Stent, senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, also author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. The TuneIn app. Bloomberg.com and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Maddie, what better way to, especially when we're getting ready for the 4th of July holiday, thinking about summer travel. I was just looking at some stats over the weekend that was, if you looked at TSA, more than 2 million passengers Oof. were on Friday. So kind of rivaling some of these numbers that we would have seen in Thanksgiving of 2019. So that was before the pandemic. When you think about that. That's so, crazy. I know. So we're getting back. I feel Jeez. like we're back. We're, we're so back. We're so <laughs> we back. are. And who better to chat with us when it comes to the travel season, especially during the summer months than David Carr 
our Senior Insights Manager with Similar Web. David, please talk to us about what your travel outlook is because it seems like when you think about the consumer, they're definitely out there traveling right now. Yeah, that's that's true. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I look at things through the lens of web traffic as a proxy for demand, and we're actually seeing things soften up a little bit. And I, I, I think if, if you were in a crowded airport uh, dealing with your canceled flight, uh, you probably didn't feel like things were, were off at all. And it's, it's, it's not that demand has collapsed. It's just not growing uh, in the crazy way that it was a year ago or two years ago uh, coming out of the pandemic. So we, we do seem to be a little bit past that, that revenge travel just got to get out there. Interesting. So softening up a bit, where exactly? I mean, is this what you're seeing just in general for flights and things like that? Uh, yeah, flights. I mean, I, I actually did an analysis of just the, the, the top 100 travel websites that we consider transactional websites where you can buy a ticket, you can buy uh, some sort of a booking. And uh, they've, they've, it's been off a little bit. Um, I, I think it's uh, it, almost unchanged from last year uh, uh, as of June, as of you know, preliminary stats for June. And you know, the big standout has been cruises, though. Cruises are, ah, uh, are, 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 are still crazy growing, um, you know, some more than others. I mean, you know, Carnival itself, the Carnival brand isn't doing quite as strongly as it's um, some of its uh, sub brands. So Princess is, is doing better. Uh, same thing with Royal Caribbean and Celebrity. Celebrity is the one that is growing the fastest right now. Uh, Virgin is growing fastest. And we, um, I, don't, I hope I'm not babbling too much, but we do definitely see a trend towards uh, low-cost travel options winning out. Mm -hmm. So if I look at airlines, they tend to be about the same or, or maybe down a little bit from, from this time last year. Uh, but Frontier Airlines is going great. And if I look at the cruises, MSC, which is a relatively budget uh, cruise line, they're the strongest of that set, uh, even though yeah. you know across the board I, I did see the cruises were up. What's so interesting that I always think about our Bloomberg Intelligence uh, Airlines analysts always talk about how important business travel is for these airlines because uh, when it's going on the company card, maybe you're getting first class travel, whereas if it's you, <laughs> maybe you're going Spirit Airlines uh, for your own uh, pocketbook <laughs> there. Talk to me about how uh, the data looks on your end when it comes to business travel. Are you seeing any big changes on that front this year? Yeah, I mean the most the most direct way I can track that is by looking at um, uh, traffic to say uh, Amex Travel, um, so a, a business travel portal, um, and you know, that's that and concur. Uh, it's up maybe twelve thirteen percent from what it was last year. So there there is, there is some interest in getting back out there to to travel again. When you're talking about a little bit of softness earlier, what do you think that tells us about the American consumer right now? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not an economist, but uh, I think consumer confidence is the, is the phrase that comes to mind. Uh, not, not that people are doing horribly, but they just, they just aren't quite sure how they're going to be doing next month. And so there may be a little bit less um, inclined to, to, to make a, a big travel purchase. They still want their vacation, 
uh, but they might be more inclined to to shop for deals. Is that part of why we're seeing such a boom in the cruise industry? Is it viewed as a deal or is it just that, uh, you know, the world's reopened, so why not go on a cruise? Like, what do we know about the thinking behind <laughs> well, the cruise? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, I've, I've read elsewhere that that cruising has uh, started to attract a younger, younger demographic and it still does well with uh, old folks like me. Younger, who, really? Uh, <laughs> David. Well, it's gotten a little bit younger, um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and I think it it is seen as a bargain, is seen as a package. Now, the um, the activity that I'm seeing right now, typically cruises are booked more in the the March April time frame. They talk about wave season when when everybody is is uh, buying their cruises. So, uh, I, you know, but I think uh, you know we saw strength then in demand but we're the fact that we're still seeing it now means that some people are are either booking a last minute cruise uh that you know they still they still find that attractive or maybe they're booking something that is for the fall or for next year uh what, and and that's all good for the cruise lines what about when it comes to hotel websites what are you seeing there is there a difference between particular high-end types of hotels maybe resorts versus maybe some cheaper bookings well, I, I, hotels in general were doing fairly well. I, I did notice that um, some of the all-inclusive resorts were actually seeing some decline or stagnation uh, in demand. Uh, so Sandals, Beaches, uh, Club Med, those those types of types of places. Uh, so, you know, again, you know, that has some of the same uh, fixed price appeal as a cruise does. Uh, but maybe people think of it as splurging <laughs> and so they're uh, a little bit less less likely to pull the trigger on that yeah some of those resorts i was looking uh, back in may to take a trip for my birthday and like you were talking about club med i, I wasn't thinking about staying there but i saw it on expedia and it was probably five six thousand dollars to stay for just a couple of days I was okay. like, no, no thanks. No, yeah. I was like, going to pass on that one. <laughs> Wait, what did you end up doing again for the travel, Jess? I went to Aruba. Yes. It was great. I had a, a good time. And just a hotel? I stayed at Renaissance. Renaissance. Um, yeah. Nice. I okay. There before. I've been to Aruba a couple times, yeah. but they have a, a yeah, Flamingo like Island Aruba. there. So oh, it's, it's a lot of fun. And okay. it takes you over. So you have to go. <laughs> Interesting that you did not consider an Airbnb, it sounds like. I wanted to go to the Flamingo Island yeah. and to, in order to get it. That's the private island at the Renaissance. Oh, so that's that's the reason that got me hooked in, onto it. You can buy a day pass, but it's more complicated. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, well, that, that makes sense as a reason. Uh, David, I know that you don't necessarily look at this data, but uh, you're, you're a travel guy. You can go on this journey with us here. To what extent <laughs> are you seeing declines sure. in Airbnb interest and consumers looking more towards hotels and other you know long-term stays, perhaps? outside of Airbnb rentals. I I did see that, that that was, uh, I guess, both both Airbnb and Verbo. Um, yeah. And, and despite, I mean, I see a lot of advertising from Verbo currently, but but they, they're trending uh, downward year over year. So the, the more traditional hotel brands are actually doing a little bit better than those guys, which is interesting. All right, David Carr, we only have about a minute left, but any sort of parting thoughts for the summer travel season for our listeners? Uh, 
I mean, I thought of mentioning that, 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 that I'm I am a cruiser. I, I have to live in driving distance of three cruise ports in South Florida. Oh wow! Uh, so, nice. So part of part of the appeal of cruising might be that you don't necessarily have to get on an airplane to to go on a cruise. And mm-hmm. uh, with uh, uh, if if it was over this past week, I, I think I would be happy to be getting on a cruise rather than flying someplace. Yeah. So. Great. Well, we are so pleased that we were able to get your insight on all things travel for this summer. That's David Carr, Senior Insights Manager with SimilarWeb, joining us on Zoom. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. But Jess, while markets are still open here, we're going to have a great talk with Marlise Van Romberg, editor and chief at Crunchbase. Uh, she's joining us on Zoom from San Francisco to talk all things tech and an outlook from Crunchbase for the second half of the year. Marlies, thanks so much for getting on a call with us on this uh, half holiday here. Uh, you have a report that your uh, organization did on the outlook for 2023 that I found so interesting. Uh, one of the results saying that companies only have six months of runway left in the bank. That's according to almost a third of your uh, company respondents there. What are the the other big uh, standout data points for you when it comes to that mid-year report from Crunchbase? Yes, good morning. Uh, Thank you for having me. So yes, uh, we actually just published, uh, we do a quarterly reader survey. um, So these are mostly obviously people in tech and venture capital who are taking that survey and and sort of telling us what they're thinking. And some of the things that we've been tracking um, since the beginning of the year is, as you mentioned, runway. Uh, That's a a big hot topic right now is how much money do startups have before they start running out of cash? Um, And what I thought was really interesting this time around was, as you mentioned, about a third of respondents uh, who answered that question said that they actually have less than six months of runway, which is definitely, uh, you know, sort of red alarm status for your company, um, particularly given that venture funding is very difficult to come by. So, um, you know, that that's really an emergency situation for those companies. Uh, what was also interesting is that it seems to be kind of a barbell uh about the same uh, percentage who answered the question said they have more than 24 months of of runway. So it seems like there's almost these two classes of companies that are emerging right now, those that are um, doing pretty well on on managing their cash and can probably, um, you know, kind of survive the the current environment uh, if if nothing else big kind of comes along. And then there are those that are really in a a difficult situation right now. Um, And I think that might be where we start to see uh, more mergers and acquisitions. It's something we've sort of been anticipating in the startup world for a while and haven't quite seen that come along. Um, but there were actually uh, quite a, a few larger deals uh, announced last week, including the the big Databricks purchase of another venture-backed startup. Um, so, you know, we might start to see some of those trends emerge now. What's been the catalyst for why there's been a divergence between those that are still doing well and then you have on the opposite side of that, those that are struggling to get that funding? You know, I think I think there are a lot of factors at play. Uh, in general, funding is, is hard to come by uh, for, for all companies right now with, you know, some obvious exceptions like AI. Investors are very, very interested in what's going on there. Um, you know, I think when 
money was easy to come by. A lot of startups did over hire, and that's why we're seeing uh, a lot of layoffs in the sector right now. As as you know, some of those uh, corrections are being made. Um, I think you know some companies were were really um, kind of trying to grab as much market share as they could when when things were hot, um, and as the market's slowing down now, um, you know, maybe didn't manage the cash they had as, as well as they could have. How much of this could be repercussions to what happened with SVB and some of these other banks that we saw earlier in the spring? Yeah, I think we, you know, really can't overstate the impact that uh, the collapse of SVB had on the sector. You know, partly it was a uh, really a impact to the confidence in, in venture-backed startups. Um, but you know, it's also just uh, SVB was was by far the the largest source of venture debt for a lot of startups. So that's something that's um, become even harder to come by. And for a lot of companies, as venture funding uh, became more difficult, venture debt was was sort of a plan B. So that's become uh, more difficult as well. Well, even though that space has been a challenge, uh, AI is certainly alive and well here. When it comes to funding for these AI firms, what are you hearing people look at and question when sussing out which firms to invest in? Uh, I think about the difference between the guests that we have on who talk about betting on a C3 AI versus you know a Qualcomm or an Intel, some of these names that uh, are AI adjacent but a little bit more stable. What are you hearing when it comes to that decision making? Yeah, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, interest and hype kind of around generative AI, but what we're also seeing is investors are really interested in more of those kind of infrastructure companies that are going to be powering a lot of what's going on in AI and that are sort of, uh, you know, adjacent or tangential to uh, the core AI companies. There's a lot of interest in that. Um, I think one investor who spoke with us kind of, you know, described it as looking for the nuts and bolts that are going to be powering the AI revolution. There's a lot of money going into that as well. Um, You know, I think as with uh, anything startup or venture capital, we are also seeing a lot of companies that are sort of just grabbing the AI label and and sort of trying to affiliate themselves with that. And I think with time, we'll, we'll sort of see a bit of a sorting there of what's real and what's not. We only have about a minute left, but what's next that you're keeping your focus on on your radar as far as what the trajectory could be when we're talking about these companies that are going through angel investment or these seed funding rounds? You know, I think seed funding um, at the beginning of this venture downturn had held up fairly well, and that's not surprising. It was really the late stage startups that were the most impacted, but we are starting to see that downturn trickle down through to the earliest stages. And that's uh, frankly, that's that's worrisome because that's, you know, the next class of companies that are going to be unicorns, um, you know, five, 10 years down the road. And so I think we will see this decline really kind of extend for quite some time with exceptions around uh, some of these sectors that really get a lot of funding. Uh, but right now we're we're seeing venture funding down across all stages of funding. All right, Marlise, thank you so much for joining us to talk about uh, your outlook and some of the picture when it comes to funding for uh, startups in uh, San Francisco and more broadly in the tech space. Really appreciate it. That was Marlise Van Romberg. She is editor-in-chief of Crunchbase. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973.
And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.